turn with me in the Bible to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, so if you open to Genesis and keep going, you'll see Exodus. We're going through this foundational book of the Old Testament. I was reading something this weekend, it said, there's no book in the Old Testament that is referred to more in the rest of the Old Testament than Exodus. So Exodus is sort of the foundation for the whole story and the prophets and a lot of everything else that comes afterwards. So uh, it's a great way to sort of get introduced to this first part of the Bible. But we are in Exodus chapter 6, and the people of Israel have been slaves in Egypt for many years and have been oppressed by Pharaoh, and God has called Moses and Aaron to lead them out of Egypt, and yet things have then seemed to become harder instead of better uh, in chapter 5. So chapter 6, verse 1, we'll read starting there. So the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. With a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanoch, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, these are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of his heart, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elnathan, and Sidri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nasan, and she bore him. Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, 
Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaf, these are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar and Aaron's son took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh king of Egypt about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. I wonder if you've ever found yourself discouraged, frustrated, or angry because of circumstances beyond your control. Now that's the situation the Israelites found themselves in at the end of the last chapter, the end of chapter 5. Uh, just a brief recap of last week to put the story in context. The last week we saw that after many long and hard years, things were starting to look up for the Israelites. For the first time in the book of Exodus, they heard God's word and believed, and they saw God's power and worshipped. And Moses and Aaron obeyed the Lord's command, went before Pharaoh to advocate on behalf of their people, but then instead of things getting better, things went downhill. Pharaoh required them to continue producing the same amount of output without any provision of raw materials. And even when Moses and Aaron and the Israelite foreman did all that was humanly possible to improve their situation, none of their efforts yielded any good results. So at the end of chapter 5, you can look at the end of chapter 5, the last few verses, the foremen are frustrated and angry, and Moses is frustrated and angry. And they call out to the Lord in their frustration and their anger. But in the section that we just read, we see God reassuring his discouraged, frustrated, and angry people. And God reassures his people in three ways, and that's what I want to look at this morning. Number one, through his unilateral promises. That's verses 1 to 13 of chapter 6. Number 2, through his background activity, verses 14 to 27. And 3, through his repeated reminders. That is verse 28, chapter 7, verse 7. So I want to look at these three ways that God reassures us when we're discouraged, frustrated, and angry because of circumstances beyond our control. So number 1, the first way God reassures us is through his unilateral promises. Now, unilateral refers to a decision or an initiative that is undertaken by one person alone, or one party, or one nation by itself. It's not a joint effort, it's not a collaboration, it's not a mutual uh, sort of uh, two-way street thing. It's one person standing up and saying, no matter what, 
here's what I'm going to do on behalf of us all. And that's what God does here. Verse 1, God says to Moses, now you shall see what I will do. Moses, God doesn't say, let's put our heads together and see what we can come up with, Moses. He doesn't say, now let me see what you can do. He says, now you're going to see what I'm going to do. And verses 2 to 5, God reminds Moses of what he's already done in the past. Starting in the more distant past, God appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He established his covenant, that is, his promises, is with them. Then in the more recent past, God said, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel. I've remembered my covenant. And then if you look at verses 6 to 8, there are seven verbs describing what God will do in the near future. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be your God. I will bring you in. I'll give you the land. All the birds have the same subject. The Lord. God's going to do all of these things. God's not saying, Moses, you do your half and I'll do my half. God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to save you. I'm going to come through on what I've already promised. Uh, the first three verbs are all about God bringing them out of bondage. The last four verbs are about God bringing them into belonging. And that's the theme of Exodus as a whole. God bringing his people from bondage to belonging, to belong to him. And so you can see that theme of the whole book just in verses 6 through 8. Um, but the point is, God is saying, I'm the one who's made these unilateral promises in the past, and I'm going to follow through in the future. Uh, the speech begins and ends with a statement of God's name in verse 2, verse 6, and verse 8. God says three times, I am the Lord. Now, when you see the word, the Lord, uh, and in most translations it will be in all capital letters or in small capital letters, uh, that is, uh, the tra it's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh uh, uh, or Jehovah. Uh, we're not 100% sure how to pronounce this word, uh, because in Biblical Hebrew there are no vowels. So the vowel pointing were added hundreds of years later to try to help uh, have consistent pronunciation. Uh, so we're not 100% sure how people pronounce things way back then, but the Hebrew letters are Y-H-W-H, just the consonants. Uh, and this name appears over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. And it's always translated as the Lord. Uh, in most English Bibles, with capital letters. Uh, the reason why it's translated this way is that this name of God, Yahweh, was considered to be so holy that for centuries, and even to this day, most Jews will not say the name aloud. Uh, so when they read passages like this one, they substitute a different name for God, Adonai, uh, instead of uh, Yahweh. Uh, but what's, what I want us to see is that Yahweh is not a title for God. When we read the Lord, we think that's a title, uh, like the king, the ruler. But it's actually the personal name of God that it was revealed to Moses. God wanted the people to know him personally. Not just to know that there was a king out there somewhere, reigning on a throne somewhere in the universe, but that he was their God. He had promised to be their, uh, their Lord. Uh, now look down uh, briefly at verse 3 um, on the topic of the Lord's name. Verse 3 says, I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. 
I want to briefly stop to explain this verse because some people have said this verse shows that the Bible contradicts itself because if you read the book of Genesis, the word Yahweh or the Lord appears several times. Genesis 15, 7, God says to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Genesis 28, 13, God says to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. So some people have said, wait a minute, how can verse 3 here be true? That by my name the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, at first, this verse might seem like a problem. But here's the thing. Often, what initially seems to us to be like a problem or a contradiction in the Bible is not so problematic when we look at it in context and more carefully. So Jewish and Christian scholars have discussed this verse for centuries, and they've come up with at least three possible solutions. So one solution is that perhaps the end of verse 3 should be translated as a question rather than as a statement. Uh, in that case, it would mean, I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. I am the Lord. Did I not make myself known to them? Uh, and that's grammatically possible. Uh, however, most translators of the Bible haven't been persuaded to accept that view. That's why it's not translated that way in our Bibles. Uh, but a second possibility, uh, which I think the second and third possibilities are better possibilities, Second possibility is verse 3 is talking about a fuller and deeper revelation of a previously known name. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had heard the name Yahweh, but God never explained the meaning of it in the way that he did to Moses here in chapter 6 and also back in chapter 3. Uh, so that's a good explanation of it. A third possibility is that the author of Genesis used the name Yahweh to show it was the same God acting all along through Genesis and Exodus, but that the characters wouldn't yet have recognized him by that name. Uh, so here's an analogy. If you were writing a biography of President John F. Kennedy, had to choose a political figure from a long time ago so that there wouldn't be any immediate feeling about me saying something controversial, right? You might say, President Kennedy grew up near Boston. Uh, that would be a normal and acceptable way of speaking, even though if you talk to people who knew him when he was growing up, they wouldn't have known him as President Kennedy, because he wasn't yet known publicly by that name. Uh, they would have called him just by his first name, or by his family's name. So the, in a similar way, uh, some people have said God wasn't yet known as Yahweh to the characters in Genesis, but the author of Genesis, Moses, calls him Yahweh to show that it's the same God all along. Uh, who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who revealed himself to Moses and delivered the people from Egypt. So I think that third explanation makes a lot of sense. Uh, the second one also does as well. The point is, I just want to share that with you because there are plenty of verses in the Bible that might seem problematic or people might say, that doesn't make sense or that's a contradiction, uh, but sometimes we just have to look a little deeper and uh, compare scripture with scripture and we can often see how verses that seem initially difficult actually can make a lot of sense. Uh, so that's a bit of a side point, but I think it's helpful to say every once in a while. Uh, but getting back to the main point, the first section is all about God's unilateral promises, what God promises to do. And uh, this is one thing that can help us when we're discouraged, frustrated, and angry <clears throat> by circumstances beyond our control. 
is remember that God has made promises to his people in the past, and God is 100% committed to following through on what he has said. So it's not primarily about, excuse me, how strong our will is, or how strong our resolve is. It's about God's will and God's resolve. That's what ultimately matters. And that's why it's valuable to uh, read and even memorize some of the I will statements in the Bible. Some of the promises of God, where God says, I will forgive your sins and remember your wickedness no more under the new covenant. Or, I will redeem you. Or, I have called you by name. You're mine. As Cheryl shared. Right? Those are the promises of God that can energize us when we're anxious or fretful uh, and give or, or give uh, or give us peace when we're anxious and fretful, give us energy when we're weary and discouraged. So that's uh, the first thing God does to reassure his people is he gives them his unilateral promises, but if you look at verses 9 to 12, that wasn't enough. They weren't immediately transformed by these wonderful promises of God. They heard all these wonderful promises of God, and it said they didn't listen because they were so discouraged and they had been under such a yoke of oppression for such a long time. And Moses says to the Lord, if my own people won't listen to me, how's Pharaoh going to listen to me? I'm not fit for this job. But God doesn't stop there. God doesn't just give us one source of reassurance. He gives us more than one. So the second source of divine reassurance is in verses 14 to 27, uh, God's background activities. Now when I read those verses, 14 to 27, the ones with all those names, I wonder if any of you, your eyes sort of glazed over and your mind sort of went somewhere else. Right? Because when we hear a genealogy like this, you know, it... It sounds like it's interrupting a story like a commercial break, right? Commercial break comes at a moment of high suspense of the story, then there's a commercial. Well, ignore the commercial, go on to the story, right? And so the genealogy seems like I ignore the genealogy, get on to the story. But in the ancient world, a genealogy would not have seemed out of place. Rather, it would have placed the story in a larger background. So it shows how Moses and Aaron aren't just isolated individuals that God raises up out of nowhere, but rather their stories are part of the bigger story of God's activity within the people of Israel as a whole. So verse 26 uh, emphasizes that at the end of the genealogy. It said, these are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, bring them with people out of Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. So the point of this middle section about God's background activity is to help us understand who Moses and Aaron are. Uh, so what do we learn uh, about Moses and Aaron? First, we learn that, they're, uh, that they belong to the people of Israel. Their ancestry can be traced all the way back to Jacob, who was renamed Israel. He was the ancestor of the 12, tri the 12, he had 12 sons, who uh, basically became 12 tribes of Israel. So Reuben was his first son, he's mentioned in verse 14. Simeon was his second son, he's mentioned in verse 15. Levi was his third son, mentioned in verse 16. The genealogy doesn't mention any of the other sons of Jacob because Moses and Aaron come from the tribe of Levi. Okay, so one of the things about genealogies in the Bible is they don't tell you all the people in every generation, they just highlight some important people to make an important point. 
So first we learn Moses and Aaron belong to the people of Israel. Second, we learn that Moses and Aaron belong to the tribe of Levi. Uh, Levi had three sons. They're named in verses 17, 18, and 19. Then in verse 20, for the first time we hear the names of Moses' parents. So remember Moses' parents who protected him when he was a little baby back in chapter 2? Uh, here we learn their names. And we also learn that Aaron is Moses' older brother, three years older than him. Now, you might say, well, why does it matter which tribe Moses and Aaron were from? Well, it matters because the Levites were designated by God to be the priestly tribe. They were put in charge of the tabernacle and the worship of God and sort of leading the people spiritually. So later on, Aaron and his sons would be appointed as priests. And the genealogy shows they're completely qualified for what God will call them to. Uh, the third thing we learn is that Aaron and his sons were specifically qualified to be priests. Uh, you might notice in verse 20, verse 23, and verse 25, there are three married couples mentioned in the genealogy. Uh, that was unusual in most ancient genealogies. Only the fathers and sons would be mentioned. Uh, but God values fathers and mothers, uh, husbands and wives. And God works through married couples to raise up the future leaders of God's people. So the point of this genealogy is God had prepared not just Moses for his calling, because we've seen a lot about Moses, but also God had prepared Aaron for what would be his calling. Uh, the genealogy also previews what God's going to do in the future, because several of Aaron's sons and grandsons are mentioned at the end of the genealogy as well. So here's the point. God had been active in the background before Moses and Aaron came on the scene in generations past, and God will be active in the future through their descendants. Now, think about where this genealogy appears in the story of Exodus. Right? When this genealogy interrupts the story, there's all kinds of tensions that are completely unresolved. The people are slaves, they've been oppressed for many years, God has promised he's going to do something for them, but then Moses and Aaron do what God told them to do, and then Pharaoh oppresses them even more. And the people are even more discouraged. And Moses is once again questioning his calling. But in the midst of all these unresolved tensions, this genealogy reminds us that God is working in the background. And Sometimes when we're discouraged and frustrated and angry by circumstances beyond our control, this is another helpful thing that we can hold on to. Think about how God has been working in the background in the past and how he's going to continue working in the future. So if you're a Christian, uh, think about the people God used to bring you into his family of faith. Right? People who first introduced you to Jesus Christ. Right? Cheryl mentioned it was her aunt and uncle who played an important role when she was a kid. But think about who it is for you. And whoever they were, thank God for those people. Right? And thank God for your spiritual siblings, your brothers and sisters in Christ who have prayed for you and spoken God's word to you and come alongside you when you need an encouragement so that You've kept on following Jesus over the years. So that's sort of like thinking about your spiritual parents and siblings. But then go back a generation. Think about who brought those people to faith in Jesus Christ. Who was it that told them 
a generation back? Who was it that invited them to church for the first time? You can go back a long way. And there's a lot of people that God used in the background of your life. You could trace the chain way, way back. This person told this person told this person and this person encouraged this person so they didn't totally give up on their faith and a hard time in their life. And that person told you. That's what this genealogy is meant to remind the people. God's been working in the background for many generations. And if things feel tenuous, and if you're frustrated, if you're angry, and things don't seem to be going right, remember that God's been at work for a long time. And you wouldn't even be here today if God hadn't been at work in the background a lot. You see, in the New Testament it says that in Christ Jesus, through faith in the gospel and the good news, that we are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of God's promise. What that means is that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, your name is included in God's list on the heavenly register. You're part of God's spiritual family. You have a place to belong. And so we can praise God for that. And also, God can work through you so that you can pay it forward. So that you can share the life and power of Christ that you've received to somebody else. Um, you can have not just spiritual ancestors, but spiritual descendants. Right? Whether or not you have any biological children at all, you can have spiritual descendants through people that you share the life-giving power of the gospel of Jesus with. So, we can be reassured by God's unilateral promises. We can be reassured by God's background activity. Third, we can be reassured by God's repeated reminders. Chapter 6, verse 28, picks up the story where it left off before the genealogy. Uh, it re-emphasizes how reluctant Moses was to carry out God's commission. And you know, this is one important difference between the biblical story of Exodus and a lot of the movies that portray it. Right? I don't know if you've seen some of the movies, The Ten Commandments, an older one, Prince of Egypt. There's a whole bunch of dramatic retellings of the story of Exodus. But in many of the movies, Moses is the hero. He's handsome, polished, muscular, clever, larger than life, unflinching in the face of opposition. But if you read the Bible, there's always a little difference between the book and the movie. And in this case, the book is always the best. If you read the Bible, Moses is a little bit more of a complicated character. Yes, Moses is the one chosen by God to lead and deliver his people, but Moses also needs constant reassurance and sometimes even redirection from God. Moses isn't the ultimate hero of the story. God is. And in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7, God reassures Moses once again, this time with repeated reminders. If you read verses 1 to 5, almost everything God says, he's already said before. He's repeating to Moses things that Moses should already know. So verse 1 to 2, God says, Aaron will be your prophet. He'll speak for you before Pharaoh. God already said that. Chapter 4, verse 16 is the reference. Verse 3, God says, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. He won't listen. God already said that too. Chapter 4, verse 21. Verse 4 says, I'll bring you out of Egypt by great acts of judgment. God said the same thing already. Chapter 6, verse 6. 
Verse 5, I'll stretch out my hand against Egypt. God already says that in chapter 3, verse 20. So almost everything God says in verses 1 to 5, he's already said. So why is God repeating the same things over and over to Moses? Well, one night, Samuel Johnson once wrote, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. And Martin Luther put it this way. Martin Luther said, I must listen to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. This is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know the gospel well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Luther's a little strong, right? But in other words, we need to not just hear the promises of God once or twice, but hear them over and over again, so that over time they finally sink into our hard heads and our hard hearts and actually break through the soil and begin to grow and make a lasting impact. You know, that's why there are some things that we regularly repeat when we gather here for worship. Right? We celebrate communion repeatedly, over and over and over again, once every month here. Maybe some churches do it more often. Right? Why? Because every time we celebrate communion, we remember what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us, the basis of our salvation. And it shows us how serious our sins are, that only the death of the Son of God could pay the price for them, but it also shows us how great God's love is, that he was willing to die in our place. And we can't be reminded too many times of those great realities. So we're going to keep on celebrating communion regularly. At the end of the worship service every week, we have a benediction. Why? Because you and I need to have God's blessing spoken over us. We need to know that when we leave this place, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit goes with us. That's the point of the benediction. So if you walk out every week during the last hymn, you're missing out on the important part of the service. Right? A good parent doesn't just tell their kids one time, I love you. Not just two or three or four or five times. A good parent repeats that phrase over and over, even on a daily basis. Not because it's a mindless or meaningless ritual, and not because you say it without thinking, but because it's life-giving truth. And because we need to communicate it repeatedly to our kids, through our words and through our actions. And so God's repeated reminders are not redundant. They're means of his grace. They're expressions of his patient reassurance. God reassures us through his unilateral promises, through his background activity, and through his repeated reminders. And through all these things, God wants us to know him and trust him personally. That's what he says in chapter 6, verse 7. Then you shall know that I and the Lord your God. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you do not leave us to ourselves when we are frustrated, angry, discouraged, when there are circumstances beyond our control that we wish we could change that we simply cannot. But we thank you for your promises. We thank you that you are the one who follows through. Thank you that in the New Testament says, he who began a good work in you 
will be faithful to bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to hold on to those promises, to receive them. Help us to see your activity in the background, to be encouraged by it, to think about what you've done in past generations and in our spiritual ancestors. And we pray that we might be channels of your grace and blessing for our spiritual descendants and for those who were walking alongside as fellow pilgrims. And Lord, thank you for repeatedly reminding us of who you are. Help us, Lord. We pray that somehow your repeated reminders would sink into sometimes our hardened minds and hearts and that there would be new life and hope and growth that come as a result of that as we and, and obedience as well. We thank you for giving Moses and Aaron the strength to obey you at the end of all these repeated reminders. And we pray that as you reassure us that you would give us strength to obey you as well. We pray this in Jesus' name.